Hello, everybody. It's that time again when I get to speak to my great good friend, Karen de la Carrier. Hi, Karen. John, we've, we've been away from each other a couple of months. Oh, oh it's... <laughs> you're, you're on a high roller. I love these things that you're secretly doing and involved in. Mm. Thank you for the briefing you just gave me. <laughs> Secret briefing. Yeah. <laughs> Secret briefing. Good, good on you. So, good anyway, to see you, John. Good to, it's see you. good to see you, Karen. Yeah. Always good. Yeah. And uh, so terrible bad news that, that Lisa Marie Presley has, has passed away far, far, far too early, age 54. Um, the daughter of a man who was probably the most famous man in the Western world for a while, Elvis Presley, um, and his Scientologist wife, Priscilla Presley. And we have a statement from Lisa Marie about her involvement with Scientology, and she was involved from childhood. I was slowly starting to self-destruct. They were taking my soul, my money, my everything. So let's start... Towards the end, in 2014, I talked with somebody um, whose brother was involved in the baby watch of Lisa mm -hmm. Marie Presley. Now, a baby watch is a very specific Scientology idea, um, whereby if somebody might cause trouble for Scientology, they are locked up with a group of Scientology staff members um, who will stop them from killing themselves. That's often the reason they're there. The, there was a case that I was on the edge of a, a woman called Lee Johnson, who was a, a staff member at St. Hill, who, um, even though she had a two-year-old, did eventually kill herself. Mm. A story that was not reported because the newspapers were frightened by all the legal threats of Scientology. But it it's a commonplace, this idea. And what had happened with Lisa Marie was that she said, you know, she was starting to self-destruct and she wanted to leave. So they camped this little group of Scientologists with her to make sure. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure if she was physically able to leave at that time. I don't I just don't know. Um, but she did leave and had what another eight, eight, nine years free of Scientology. And, and now we have this terrible news now. You had some involvement with Lisa Marie Presley, didn't you? Yeah. Um, Just to roll back, it mm. was John Travolta that reeled Priscilla Presley into Scientology. Priscilla had some rough time, depression, she was in a weak state of being persuaded. And Travolta convinced her that Scientology therapy could handle her woes. Yeah. So John Travolta is the who when you roll it back. Mm. Now, John Travolta, let's say you, you weren't educated. It would be hard for you to undo what you have, all the knowledge you have. But let's say you were completely- I'll forget everything for this moment. Forget everything. And John Travolta said, oh, John, there's a sushi restaurant with yummy sushi down the road. Nodding it, you've got to go. You would go because Travolta wouldn't recommend that sushi restaurant, right? right? 
So for Walter's weight of his celebrity reeled in Priscilla. And Priscilla reeled in her daughter. Now, celebrity sent her before moving to this castle on Franklin was a brick and mortar three-story outfit on a street called La Brea. Mm. Very, very main street. Yeah. La Brea intersects with Hollywood and Sunset Boulevard. Mm. That's how central it is. I've been there. I've been to the La Brea Tar Pits. There you go. Oh, you've been there. Yeah. And this black limousine would pull up. I didn't always go to meet Lisa at the black limousine, but I recall one time Priscilla shouting, handle her. And she was being forced out to enter La Brea and come in session with me. And I was- How old, how old was she at this time? 11. 11, 11 years old. 11 years, 11 years old. Oh, if Scientology can rake in money on children auditing, John, I got to tell you, misguided parents think we will be generous. We will pay for our children to have Scientology indoctrination. They believe it's a gift. Mm. I just want to tell parents, you are completely overriding power of choice of your child by enforcing and shoving them into indoctrination very often against their will. There are a couple of forums on Facebook full of second generation uh, who've left, who've departed, and who are actually quite, I would say, bitter that they were dragged through Scientology procedures as children. And, and, and terrible, um, terrible, terrible things happen. You've got the, the Scientology kids, you know, a group of people I tremendously admire for, for, for what they've done over the years. But just, you know, winding back and thinking about the way children are, are treated in Scientology, one of the one of the most heartbreaking stories I've heard was from a woman whose children grew up in the sea organization um and she you know believed and so she she gave them the barley formula instead mm-hmm. of mother's milk and this she said you know by the age of I think about four one of her children had lost all of all of his teeth they'd all gone black and fallen out because of this stupid idea of feeding high fructose corn syrup to babies, you know, as, as if there could be, and this is from an old Roman formula that Ron Hubbard remembered. I mean, he was, this stuff is really dangerous and destructive. And then when you look at some of the procedures and processes that the children indoctrinated into, the most difficult cases I've ever had were all second generation. It was always second generation, born into it, and they don't have anything to return to afterwards. So they have to construct a world. It's like if you're brought up in the dark, your eyes won't work. If if you don't have light to stimulate the brain to form the pathways, then your eyes won't work. 
and with second generation Scientologists, they, they have much further to go than, than the rest of us um, because it's such an invasive system, so much more so than anything else I've encountered. And I've looked at tens and tens, maybe hundreds of different systems. There's nothing else like Scientology. It's unique in the way that it overwhelms people. Conway and Siegelman said this in their book, Snapping, that um, Scientology has the most debilitating set of rituals of any cult in America. And they reckon it would take 12 and a half years to recover from Scientology if you were not helped. And I wrote that, they published that in 1990, the last edition. I was in touch with them uh, six, seven years ago. And I said, uh, it was a guess, wasn't it? 12 and a half years. The, the reality is that most people will never recover. If you don't actually go and talk with them and help them through the implanting of Scientology, they'll continue to believe many of these absurdities and go on to harm themselves in life and others by trying to enforce these ideas on people, which are, you know, Elrin Hubbard taking a, a handful of amphetamines and barbiturates and remembering a past life in a dull body on another planet for six trillion years or something. It, it is absolute nonsense. End of rant, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's heartbreaking, but I know of children who've been disowned by their parents for leaving Scientology. Mm. Imagine, John, just imagine the bond of parent and child. Mm. You would think that would be indestructible. Inviolable. Yes, it's sacred, it's mm. precious, but you're talking about how insidious Scientology can tangle with your mind so much that the disconnection policy and renouncing your own blood child can be Scientology is a love only me cult or love me first cult. Mm. First, I'm first in line. Family, spouse, and all that are lower down the food chain. And people will love the cult more desperately and more fervently and more loyally than their own child. Can you elaborate on that? Can you just shake your head in disbelief? Um, the the, the horror, it's a horror because what we have is a situation where parents who are willing to do that, the first thing I have to say is they haven't become adults. They haven't become grown up. The point of becoming grown up is where you can take responsibility for your own life and don't need to look to a parent mm. to tell you what to do. Of course, in a good situation, no matter how old you are, if your parents are alive, they can offer you advice, but you will make the decisions in your life, no matter what the advice is. That's what being grown up means. That's what being adult means. So in Scientology and in other authoritarian groups, the cult leader becomes a pseudo parent, a mm. pretend parent. Um, and people seem to regress in age to, you know, I tend to think that, that when somebody leaves Scientology, they're 12 years old. That be about because so many decisions have been taken away from them that that they should have had as, as adults, and they ha they're on the edge of adolescent rebellion, 
they've been put down to that place and you'll often see them go through you know, they'll leave leave the cult and smoke dope or you know do whatever it was they they do you know and when somebody who's like 50 years old has decided they're going to grow their hair and you know um wear sandals uh, so to that to take that thought and say well this person has now said you know ron hubbard or david miscavige worse yet is my parent scientology is my parent they can then reject their own children i mm. i have four children my perspective is that i have no choice but to offer them unconditional love and support so whenever i hear one of these stories the jehovah's witnesses i was in st petersburg and a guy who was helping me he was 35 years old and he said he had his parents wouldn't talk to him and it just stops me that thought you understand kids not talking to their parents that's going to happen but parents not talking to their kids that that is childish it's irresponsible in the extreme um you know but it's cult doctrine yeah they're not just they are obeying hmm. the cult says continuous adherence to a suppressive personal group makes you a suppressive person hmm. this is psychology nonclature uh, you know <laughs> I've said this before, I'll say it again. The pretense when you enter Scientology, the pretense, the lie, is man is basically good. And that's really, I think it's in the, it, it's in the opening statements of what is Scientology. Mm. Man is fundamentally, his character, his goodness, he has all this, overlay of reactivity and all but that's fundamentally he's good mm. but in scientology for the next 10 20 30 40 years they will harbor and harass you for your evil in set checks in ow write-ups in sending you to the ethics they are fixated on getting your transgressions mm. what have you done what criminal act are you hiding from us? What evil intention? The whole of false purpose rundown, which people do for 50 hours, 100 hours, is to flush out evil purposes. The L's zero into evil, your evil, your evil impulses, your evil. So, and then, like me after 40 years and other people 30 years and my grinder 40 years you're declared an anti-social personality a person so after all of that you were evil anyway but they didn't detect it they have all this high tech and they didn't know that you were a suppressive person well right. they sucked out 60 to 80 hours a week of labor for 15 to 20 dollars a week pay they didn't know you were a separate person. But after 30, 40 years of using you, and in spite of saying man is basically good, they have the cognition that you were evil anyway. John? Yeah, I know all the work they've done over the decades has, has come to nothing. Um, that my After I got in Scientology, I was 19 when I got in Scientology. And um, my mum, who was a well-respected citizen, a, a, a town councillor and a, a leading member of the Conservative Party and all of this kind of thing, 
um, and an absolutely lovely woman. Um, she very sensibly thought, well, I'll I'll go and check this out. I won't tell John. I'll, I'll go in and I'll I'll see what it's like. And she did a communication course. She thought it was a very odd thing. You know, she arrived and there was somebody in the corner of the room shouting, off with his head, you know. You know, there were people with plasticine, clay, making things. You know, it was very odd, but but she quite liked some of the ideas. And the upshot is that she lasted eight years. She was involved for eight years. And then um, the story of a squirrel, David Mayo, came out in 1982. And she looked at this thing and she made a very straightforward observation. David Mayo was Ron Hubbard's auditor, his counsellor. He worked with Hubbard pretty much. Well, he's involved in Scientology for 25 years. Ron Hubbard is the brilliant expert on all of this stuff. And Ron Hubbard hadn't noticed in 25 years that this man who was right next to him was a suppressive person. And curiously, when you look at the list of suppressive persons over the years, just about anybody who worked closely to Ron Hubbard was a suppressive person, but he didn't notice. <laughs> and I think it's the fundamental error in Scientology and in any cult, in, in psychotherapies, in religions, this idea you have an enemy inside you who is hidden from you. <laughs> the biggest scam in the world. You've got a devil inside you, an id inside you, an unconscious mind inside you that has agency and you don't know what it's doing and thinking. It's not true. It's just not true. So all of that, those thousands of hours of auditing to extricate you from this, this terrible, it, it's a nonsense. And you will end up worse than you started. You'll end up with less, you know, this idea that Scientology leads to self-determinism, you know, and then you get the, the, the code of the Sea Org member that you're going to follow and uphold command intention. And people say, oh, that's pan-determinism, John. It's like, no, that's other determinism. That's run-determinism. You know, the whole idea of Scientology that you'll be completely self-determined when you do exactly what Ron Hubbard says. And he's the only person who can ever discover any any ideas, or any major discovery is his. You're, it's a hiding to nothing. You, you are going to have your locus of control, your sense of self pillaged. And you, you know, it's vampirism. I, I started seeing it that way a long time ago. I was just drawing everything out of the people around me saying, you're absolutely fine. You're doing really well. Give me some more money. Borrow some more money. That's fine. Yeah, leave your spouse if they if they don't approve of me. Yeah, throw your children away. Yeah, you're doing really well. You're doing looking at Celebrity Center. You know the idea that Yvonne Gillum, who everybody loved, Yvonne Jens, she was married to the same man you were married to for a while there. That she was great. Everybody I've interviewed who knew Yvonne said she was the most wonderful person, and yet she gave her three children, aged what eleven to fourteen, eleven to thirteen to Ron Hubbard, and they were the first Commodore's messengers. Uh, what? You know, they had no parent, they had no education. They they lived in that squalid, awful place, which you know so well, um, in this completely irresponsible, you know, the, the this completely irresponsible man who cared nothing about anybody but himself. And so, you know, parenting and the responsibility of a parent. It's, Scientology is, 
it's just it's just absolutely the wrong way to go if you want to create a society where people can be good, where people can be kind, loving, considerate. And Hubbard, of course, you know, has no sympathy and no empathy, no feeling for others. You're making this robotic, narcissistic, self-interested individual out, out of whoever comes along. You're being put on the production line and turned into a robot. You know, it's terrible. John, we have to examine why. I, and I want to, I don't know if I've covered this with you. We've done, what, 30 videos? Together. That's a lot, though. It's been great yeah. fun. Um, we have to examine why people just are baffled with the excruciating punishments and Scientology have weaponized the SB Declare so that Scientologists do have an inborn fear that maybe one day they'll get declared or maybe if they don't get declared, they will be threatened with declare or not. They have something called a non-interpolation order. That means if you create any more trouble of any sort, the next step is you'll be declared a suppressive person. So this is always dangling. It's, a, it's, a, it's like uh, the sword of Damocles. You know that legend where there's a sword? So there's, yeah, there's, there's a sword hanging over their head. But I've got to explain because I did all the technical stuff, why people swallow this and not just swallow it, but swallow it with such incredible devotion mm -hmm. that they will choose Scientology over their own child. We have to explain it because otherwise people walk away and just think some people are too stupid and moronic to you know, they just, they almost deserve, if they were that idiotic, then they deserve it. We don't want audiences to think like that. So I want to explain a couple of mechanisms. Mm. And then I want to go back to Lisa and yeah. what Baby Watch really is. Baby Watch is bodyguarding someone. They're, they're actually in a hold, in a held position without free passage so we need to get back to baby watch but first let me explain how in the devil what in the world are people thinking to glum on to scientology with such total utter compliance and obedience i need to explain that did i ever get into that with you in all the previous videos we've done we've touched on it and and i you know, I have some ideas to share as well, but uh, but please go ahead. I'm fascinated. Let me, let me give my thing, and then it would be fabulous for you to give your mm. cerebral analytical <laughs> analysis of your of how you see it. But let me tell you something. When one experiences a very, very good feeling. I want to call it a high. You can get the same thing by jabbing yourself with a heroin or winning a million dollars in a Las Vegas casino mm. or winning a lotto. 
there is a moment of complete utter joy joyfulness and nothing in the world worries you you have achieved a special kind of happiness in the lower levels of scientology scientology offers something a little bit unique you're in the bubble you're in a room very quiet very private and there's a counselor whose entire attention is on you the sun rises and sets with you and what you say you are the most important person in the world to this trained counselor well so it appears <laughs> 200 people will read have access the in the laura de crescenzo law they admitted that 200 people have free access to every word you said yeah plus what you're not realizing is you're on camera and your camera feed goes into a bank of camera where executives can walk into this television bank of computer monitors and they can step in and hear every word you're confessing, every masturbation you did, every... Every sordid detail, every secret act. Yeah. Yeah. But you believe, you believe it's only you and the counselor. And you unload your deepest secrets because you're probed for your secrets. You're probed for your withholds. You're probed. However, the questions can be quite clever. I'm sure psychoanalysts and psychotherapists would agree that they also have had fluke sessions where the person feels so good, they feel elated. They finally were unburdened of a secret that they carried around for 10 or 12 years. I think I gave you an example of a girl who at 11, 12 years old, she stroked her German shepherd's penis. Yep. And she felt later as she We, we won't up, be illustrating that, by the way, people. <laughs> she felt later on, this was not okay for her to interfere with the private parts of an animal. But she withheld, it was a secret. And one day in a Scientology session, she spat it all out. And she examined her emotions. And, and she loved the dog, but she didn't love the dog sexually. I mean, what does an 11 or 12-year-old know about penises and dog penises? This was, however, because she pushed it down, she developed... I don't want to use the word charge, that's a Scientology word. She developed unwanted feelings and emotions and unwanted, she, she blew it up to be far bigger than it was because of holding it in. 
And so she felt a great relief. Mm. Now that's not what I'm referring to on a high, spiritual high. In the, the early, er, not the body patents and all the <laughs> sci-fi volcano, not the later Scientology, but the early, early Scientology can give you a sense of utter relief, even joyfulness. You go, oh my, and you feel you feel that Scientology now has the answers. If you could feel that good after one hour of talking to your counselor, you want more of that. Mm. You feel, oh my goodness. I wonder what OT, if, if I could feel that good on my first 12 and a half hours, I gotta have on. I'm going to beg, borrow, steal, but I'm going to get up to OT8. Mm. John, your yes. turn. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That, that The first stage of the process for most people is a sense of relief, a sense of release that um, psychologists have, have for a long time, for decades, used the term peak experience experience and you feel euphoria a sense of complete well-being nothing in the world bothers you anymore you've been able to put down your troubles i mean i'll give you a just a show that scientology is absolutely not the only thing that can lead to this i many years ago visited uh, san jose where they have uh, a japanese garden and i wondered why they've got huge 20-foot fences around these gardens and they've got two pools there and these the fish the koi carp in these pools were donated in the 1930s so i by the time i saw them they were at least 50 years old and they were quite big and they've got every variety the the moon carp the black ones with the gold um stripy ones orange ones and the whole world just fell away I'm looking at these beautiful, beautiful creatures and nothing else existed. Now that's a peak experience. We have them naturally in life. I used to have them you know, probably three or four times a week by the time I arrived at Scientology because I was 19, I was an adolescent. And you're at the point in fact in your teens where emotionally you are most sensitive. You won't probably have such strong experiences again which is why some people think their childhood is the best time you also won't of course have the negative experiences that come with such emotions but so you have a peak experience what our friend Yuval Laor um, would would describe as awe you have an awe experience something is wow that's great and it's actually incredibly easy to bring these experiences about because there are little tricks involved which Ron Hubbard, I fear to say, had discovered. So there's a, a great craze for mindfulness in the world at the moment. Um, I just read a review of a book in New Scientist where Daniel Goleman and a man who the reviewer calls Rin Posh, which is actually a title, not a name, but let's not worry about that. Uh, it's a Tibetan term for a master. Um, but where they've they've written how great meditation is. And this guy's saying, well, I was very skeptical about this, but I've read this book and it sounds great. And uh, they say that meditating can lead to compassion. Well, I've just 
written a letter to New Scientist, which I do from time to time. They even sometimes publish them. And it pointed out in one paragraph that there is a simple failing in this. The entire Japanese military from the end of the 19th century, every man jack of them were trained in meditation. It did not lead to compassion. It led to the largest massacre of civilians ever at Nanjing. More people died at Nanjing than died at Hiroshima or in the Dresden bombings. And they were slaughtered by the Japanese army, who did not show them any compassion. The Zen master who had taught the general who led that, his meditation is Zazen, wrote him a, a letter congratulating him on bringing true Buddhism to China. That's how much compassion. So there's something very interesting in this mindfulness. It was used to be transcendental meditation. That was very popular before. And the uh, National Institute for Health in the US spent $23 million researching transcendental meditation before deciding that it wasn't that useful. They've spent $110 million researching mindfulness without as yet producing any significant study to show it's good. But what it does do is it induces the Gansfeld effect. If you sit and stare at something for long enough, there will start to be movement, there will start to be colours, you will start to hallucinate. You basically, what's happening is, is your brain is, is going, there's no stimuli, what's happening? And you start experiencing that it's like the volume's turned up to, to make it more and more sensitive and you will start getting the Gansfeld effect. One of the other things that comes with the Gansfeld effect, if you sit and stare at something for long enough, 10 minutes will usually do it, you'll start to feel good. You'll start to feel euphoria. You'll start to relax. And again, people experience this in meditation, and it's fine that they should. The problem is, if you then connect to that, the thought that whoever taught you this technique has special knowledge. They know something about the world you don't. And even the cleverest of people, and you know, I, I did a, I've done several shows with Pat Ryan and Joe Kelly, who were both, I think Pat was in there for like 14 years or something. He graduated with a degree from the Maharishi University, an accredited university, my God, in the US. And they had um, eminent Nobel Prize winners lecturing who were absolutely sold on the art of on the idea of transcendental meditation. The problem is, and I found this uh, Collins, a publisher that became HarperCollins, biggest publisher in the world, they asked me to write a book about transcendental meditation after that sell these people a piece of blue sky came out. And I spent six months off and on interviewing people until I decided I really didn't want to write a book about transcendental meditation because I didn't want to spend, I didn't want to be harassed by this group. I'd found out that they too harassed people. There are deaths involved with TM. Um, and I didn't want to be known as an expert on cults for the rest of my life. Well, that wish I'm afraid did, didn't come true. Um, but I interviewed people who've been really quite badly damaged through meditation. So uh, somebody who had tunnel vision as a consequence of meditation. People who, children who'd grown up in TM, whose parents had just ignored them because they wanted to meditate 12 hours a day. Now, this is where we cross over that if you stimulate those positive feelings in somebody, that feeling of euphoria, which of course marks the end of a Scientology sen uh, session because it's called very good indicators. 
the person is going, yeah, wow, I feel great. Now, what we know about that is that your critical faculties collapse when you are either manic, hypermanic, too happy or too sad. We don't reason well when our emotions are stirred up. And so that's the perfect point to say, would you like to give us some money for the next course? And in Scientology, it's, there's always the carrot dangled in front. I, I realized quite early on, I was doing the so-called academy levels and I was on the, the first class zero course. And I realized that people want to get through this check sheet to get to the next one. They want to finish this course because the next one. So I, I've said this before, when I did OT3, I went in having a tested OT3 and everything's great. And the guy who'd um, regged me, the guy who'd, who'd sold me on this, um, I went to him and said, he, he was in a bizarre position because he'd been the the tech sec, the technical secretary UK before he realized that the way, if you want any money at all and you work on staff, you have to be a registrar because you'll get a commission when you sell things. Everybody else is starving. Your registrars can afford to have a car, you know, to not have to roll cigarettes, you know, incredible thing. And so he'd had this cognition, this realization. And so he was a strange position. He'd been running all of the auditing and now he was doing this. And I went to him and said, uh, you know, I don't really feel any tremendous benefit from doing this. And I thought, retread, have to pay for it again, do it all again. That's what I thought would happen. And he just looked at me and said, um, a lot of people find that. Now imagine that. A lot of people find that OT3 doesn't work. That's a wild thing to say. You need OT4. So I did OT4, you know, where they deal with the little indwelling demons that have got drug problems, as Tony Ortega says, why, why we should be paying for their drug problems, I don't know. But that's what <laughs> you're doing. And I did OT4, and then I went in and said, you know, I don't really feel any tremendous benefit from OD4. And um, this guy looked at me, he said, a lot of people find that. Uh -huh. So it's like, oh, a lot of people find that OT3 doesn't work and OT4 doesn't work. You need OT5. So I signed up for OT5 and did 25 hours of that, which was, you know, and I had the top guy in the UK, Richard Reese, um, Bill Clinton's mate at Oxford, the guy, you know, the, Clinton thought Scientology was okay because he liked Richard Rees. I mean, that's not a very rational way to come to a decision. You know, it's like doing Scientology because you met John Travolta. It's, you know, um, we both know Spanky Taylor. So we know that John Travolta is not the cleverest um, pencil in the, um, on the roof or, or whichever analogy you want to use. He is not, he is not a, a deep philosophical thinker. Let's be polite about it. But, People will join up because Dom Cruz or John Travolta or somebody who's been successful in the acting, he was a celebrity, is saying this is a great thing. Well, so there, there's a word in, in Greek which, which is coming to English, and the word is ecstasis. And we have the word ecstasy from this. And it literally means standing beside yourself, standing outside of yourself, which, of course, is Scientology is totally... That's all you're meant to be achieving. You're meant to be able to escape your body. And for me, in recovering from Scientology, the, being willing to accept that having a body is an absolutely wonderful thing was one of the things that I had to come to, to go, this is great. I've got this thing that I can sense, you know, and not despising the body, not hating 
the physical body and thinking, you know, I'm a Thetan, I'm a, you know, this sort of thing that's above the world. But you induce this state of awe, this state of um, euphoria where the critical faculties are collapsing. And people will then attach and go, well, yeah, what, what else have you got? And auditing, so much of it is about simply inducing those experiences so that people then start becoming dependent and you get auditing junkies that at the next level, the next level, the next level. I've, I've told this story a few times. Um, Stephanie Ryburn, who was the owner of the Birmingham Mosley Mission of Scientology, franchise as they used to be called, she wasn't there when I first got in because she was off in the US trying to work out how it was that people like you know Kingsley Wimbush and um, Bent Corridon were making fistfuls of money where you know they were really they couldn't really afford to pay their staff in Birmingham so she was wasn't there and when she got back I felt that that she looked at me with total disdain she never smiled at me she never called me by name and I I thought you know because you've got the OTs and you think oh yeah they can read my mind you know which is is bound to make odd things happen in your head and so you know she just didn't like me there was something you know I I fell short seven years later I'm on OT5 she's on OT5 she comes out of the waiting room grins at me first time she's ever smiled at me calls me by name and says isn't it wonderful that Ron's come up with something that deals with the mess that OT3 makes so suddenly there's this mission that for 15 years 14 years because she did it with Hubbard on the ship she did the class eight course and OT3. She's saying it messed her up. And I've met so many people. And you can't say that. You can't go around saying, actually, this bit was awful, you know, um, because you've got to keep this pretense up that it's a great and wonderful thing. And that starts bringing in all sorts of social mechanisms, our obedience to authority, our group think, the wanting to be part of the group. You know, when I was on OT3 and or I think just finished it and was kind of going, oh, I'm not sure about this. A friend of mine came up from Birmingham and he was starting the OT levels. And he's like, John, John, you can tell me now I'm on the OT levels. What fantastic things can you do? And you don't want to say, well, I can still tie my own shoelaces. But that's <laughs> about the extent of my super normal abilities. You know, that it it's just not so you 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 know, the, the emperor has no clothes. You enter into this world. Uh, Hubbard says it in the open letter to all clears. And if you read between the lines, what he's saying is you're you're clear and all of that. But it, it hasn't actually made anything any better. But you've got to pretend to everybody else that, that now in a wonderful state. So they'll keep giving us money. And um, yeah, that's. It's a, a terrible, terrible. Position to be in. Um, that will then develop. So there are all sorts of mechanisms working in this. One of them is the consistency principle, which, and, and anybody watching this, read Robert Cialdini's book, Influence. This explains six of, he added a seventh one, but the six basic methods by which we are influenced, and they're neither positive nor negative, they're just ways in which we're influenced. Consistency is one of them. And that means that when you started doing something, you'll keep going. I call it the inertia principle. You'll keep heading in the same direction. The 
people talk about throwing good money after bad. So um, the psychologist Anthony Prakarnis talks about a, a woman who was scammed online or, or in, a, in a phone scam, I think. Actually, this goes back some time. And she spent every cent she had, despite all of her family saying, this person is a scammer. So you get the thing saying, I'm a Nigerian prince and I'm going to inherit millions. If you just give me $10 now, then that'll allow me to do this. And then it's, oh, I'm sorry, I need $200 now. I need $500. I need it. And once you start heading in a direction, you'll keep going in that way. So with Scientology, once you've bought the um, Kool-Aid, it was actually Flavor-Aid. You know, that was a brilliant marketing move on the part of Flavor-Aid to blame Jonestown on Kool-Aid, you know. But once you've sipped the Kool-Aid, there's there's this progression of, and even though you, it, it's evident, if you sit down and think about it, none of the people around you have supernormal powers. People in Scientology are obsessed with money. They're obsessed with their themselves narcissistically. Um, they, they, they aren't kind or charitable or loving. Those are not qualities that you would attribute to Scientologists. So even though you're surrounded by these people and people are being worked to death in slavery and human trafficking, somehow the blinkers go on. And it's all about, you know, one day I am going to have supernatural powers. One day I will be enlightened and I'll be able to you know, blow planets up if I feel like it. And rather than, you know, how many, how much, you know, how will I get enough rice and beans to eat for my dinner tonight, which is more the, the actual lived reality of Scientology. So, yeah, it, it's about giving somebody a, a peak experience, a high, as, as you quite rightly put it. And then what, what usually happened when I left, I spent the first year after I left and I talked to so many hundreds of people and I'd say to them, what was it that you persuade that persuaded you that Scientology was the right thing for you? And it was either a book one session because they'd become from the late seventies, they'd come back and they'd have had a, a high experience there, or it was training routine zero that or meditation as it's called elsewhere. Tratak is the specific staring at another person form in Hindu practice. And then it would be, did you ever experience that again? And none of the people I talked to, I'm sure there are people who, who did, but it was like when you talk to people about drug experiences, the first time they used LSD or, or whatever it is, it was fantastic. And then they tried to get that experience again, and it was never quite as good. And in Scientology, and even then, what is the use of getting high? You know, the... the... Well, let me jump in here. Now, yeah. I, I have a couple of things to say. First mm. of all, the peak experience is only transitory. Mm. And there's a crash and burn that inevitably follows mm. that joyful happiness. You live on planet Earth, you have bills to pay, you have conflicts, you, you have neighbors that worry you, you have business partners that rip you off, blah, blah, blah. You live in it, you live in a, you're not some isolated living in a cocoon without external influences. So 
no matter how happy that peak experience is very limited in time. Mm -hmm. But I will argue with you, John, when you say, and I, and I do get your concept that once you have uh, the inertia concept, mm -hmm. once you're in, you just continue. No, Scientology will force you to leave with its diabolical punitive. It will smash sooner or later. You will get a horrible Scientology ethics experience. And after that, you drift off. You don't stay there. I mean, the amount of people that just depart and leave is more than what they're bringing in, which is why their total quantity of practicing time Scientologists has gone down, down, down. They can't recruit enough because they harm those already in, forcing them to drift away. And the inertia does not then, there is a, you're right in a way, John, there is a percentage that are so radicalized and diehard. They're in for the duration and sadly they will die believing in it all. But Scientology, <laughs> hammers to pulp so many and is so hideous in their conduct that they cause, they cannibalize their own. True hmm. believers who may have produced radicalized enough to bring other people in, they hammer them because Scientology has in its own DNA, management by punishment, not to sit down, not to have a negotiation, to talk it through, not to see, look, let's give each other a win-win. Let's, let's see if we can meet halfway in the middle. You want to talk to your parents who are posting on Tony Ortega's blog? Okay, so instead of pulverizing you and kicking you out the door because of your parents. Let's sit down and talk it through. No, Scientology brings the hammer down, but they won't refund you your money. You may have $80,000 on account, but your parents read John Atak's book. your toast, but we're not going to keep your money. No refund, no refund. There isn't a week in my existence where I don't get some plea from someone. Karen, is there any way we could get back our money? That's a, that's a bit of a con. That's a religious dishonesty. We will take your money, but you've signed all these papers saying it was a donation. And donations are not refundable. So we're going to declare you an antisocial personality and keep your money. And you thank you very a, much indeed. You see what a rigged casino it is? Only the house wins. Yeah. And that, has and that In Scientology, we got your money. Screw mm -hmm. you. We can kick you out the door. 
or we can do this, that, but you're not getting your money back. Your money is gone with the wind. Anyone watching this video, listen, what money you give to Scientology is in a one-way escalator or uh, what do you call these <laughs> at an airport where your luggage it's circles? A conveyor belt. Uh, it's a conveyor belt one way into Scientology's coffers. You will not. Scientology's got armies of lawyers to fight you and it's going to keep your money while shockingly declaring you an antisocial personality. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, both things are true that consistency, Cialdini also calls it commitment. And um, not to put too fine a point on it, you were involved for over 40 years. Yes. Uh, I was involved for nine years. And that was because despite what we saw, despite we played down what was bad and we went along with the, the positive ideas of the group this is normal human behavior if you look at the dreadful child abuse scandals that have erupted in the catholic church the anglican church the methodist church the baptist churches the jehovah's witnesses the the scale of these things has been incredible the australian royal commission found 500 priests who'd abused 8,000 people in australia now then you go well hang about the pope wasn't you know, Benedict Ratzinger, he was a bit quiet about this. And why didn't they do anything? Well, we've got to protect the reputation, the good name of the organisation. That's the consistency principle in action as well, that um, that in which we believe we will continue to support. If I'd had any sense, and I don't, it's well known to all who know me, I would have walked out of Scientology probably on the first day because okay. when i went in and i i wasn't recruited i read the first half of science of survival went this sounds great asked a few questions of people who didn't know the answer and should have gone and found it for me and i went in i went and i was given a copy because yeah my first experience was i arrived there and i haven't got any money i've spent the last money i have getting you know, the train and the bus to go there and my return fare. I haven't got anything. And so they won't let me have a copy of Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health, which was a pound a copy at the time. There's no way they're going to trust me to go over it. So there's the first red flag. The second is they give me two copies of Advance magazine where I'm being told that Hubbard is Metreya, Metea, the future Buddha who will save all of humanity and take humanity in his lifetime into Nirvana or Nibbana, if you want the, the Pali. Now, I was a Buddhist, and I read these things, and I went, this is complete nonsense. And my first act, the first week I was in Scientology, was to write to the Pali Text Society and say, they're claiming that there's a prophecy that a red-haired man will come in the, the West two and a half thousand years after the Buddha, and he will be Maitreya. And I got a letter back almost by return of post, where they say, well, this is the book of the great deceased, which I've subsequently read. And of course, it's not a mainstream aspect of Buddhist belief. Nothing about a redhead, nothing about the West, nothing about two and a half thousand years, just that there will be a future Buddha. So those were lies. But I decided on balance, you know, that 
Scientology was offering me something positive. And again, Cialdini, an influence, he and a logic professor went to a transcendental meditation recruiting meeting. And the, these two people on the stage back and forth said all of these things. And at the end of it, the logic professor stood up and asked them a series of questions. And neither of them could answer any of the questions. He pointed out logical inconsistencies in what they were saying, and they had no answers. Then they watched as people signed up for the course. So at the door, they said to people, why did you sign up? And the standard answer was, if we thought about what you'd said, we wouldn't sign up. But we're desperate. We need change in our lives. So we've signed up, even though. And, you know, that that is that is what happens that we we you know i've i've got into this oh, discussion with quite a lot of people over the years people keep telling me that and, and that critical thinking is the answer to our problems and chris shelton and i did a program about this because chris was a little upset when i picked up something he'd said which was he was talking to sean atwood and he, he said um that um, critical thinking is the antidote to cults. And I, I just in one of my shows said, I, I don't agree with Chris. I don't think that critical thinking is the antidote to cults because I've never had a problem with that. You know, I could have argued the hind legs off Socrates and several donkeys by the time I was 19. Uh, so the problem is that if your critical thinking is then chained to persuading yourself that your beliefs are right, then you will buttress, you will use the full weight of your intelligence to buttress your stupidity. And which is exactly what I did and probably continue to do in some ways. That you have to have what my friend Christian Cherko calls critical emoting. That you have to understand what you're feeling and why you're feeling it. And how it is that you have this profound belief this sense of absolute certainty that one day you'll be an operating thetan and you'll do these things it's a scam and what's being played with in the recruiting process are your emotions and getting you to have that feelings of knowing you know feelings of certainty you're absolutely sure that what this man is saying is true when um, Mike Rinder said to me, he said, uh, let's do a show about Ron Hubbard's book, History of Man. And so we we got to do the show, the day of the show. And, and, and I said, oh, I read it. I haven't read a Scientology book for 40 years, Mike. And he said, you read it? <laughs> it's like, I said, yeah, it is the most preposterous nonsense I've ever read in my life. <laughs> it is completely inconsistent with itself. It, you know, the new editions have been corrected. The original edition starts, this is a cold-blooded and factual account of your last 60 trillion years. Now, having researched a history of Scientology, which, you know, takes us through the 20th century, perhaps, that took me six years. How did he manage in two weeks to research 60 million, million years? You know, incredible. Well, the answer is by taking a huge amount of amphetamines. But... Then later in the book, it's 73 trillion years. And then it goes to 76 trillion years. Now Miscavige has corrected it, so it says so. And you know, and the importance of date location in Scientology, if you don't have the exact date, it's 60 trillion, it's 73 trillion. Trillions of years. We live in a, in a galaxy that hasn't been here. It's only been here for 14 billion years. So he's throwing around tens of trillions of years. 
that's how accurate it is. And, and we evolved from clams, the grim weeper, the boo-hoo, the piltdown man. It's just, oh no, how was I ever involved in this thing? How embarrassing, how shameful to have, you know. And I remember reading that book and thinking it was nonsense when I was a Scientologist, but it didn't matter because it wasn't on a, a course. I wasn't having to get people to remember the being grim weepers. You know, so the amount of the, we downplay the value of the evidence that contradicts what what we want to believe. And that takes us to cognitive dissonance. Leon Festinger's idea that if somebody challenges your belief, the better their evidence against your belief, the more you will believe. And curiously, the person he proved this with was a Scientologist. Um, and had her own live-in Scientology auditor while channeling an entity, uh, Santa Nanda or something, from another planet. And they were going to come and pick him up and take him off on the mothership. And Festinger said, oh, when those who go to the mountain to meet the mothership will continue to believe. When the mothership doesn't turn up, they'll continue to believe. And they did. So that's our tendency. Your needle's floating, I can tell from here. <laughs> John, I want to summarize. That was, that was hilarious. I want to summarize. I like. I, we've gone over an hour. I like to keep it. Yeah, keep it short. Yeah. Donate us one hour of time. To, there are three, le three important lessons here. Three important lessons that I want to just... Never give a Scientologist any money. Money? <laughs> it's a conveyor belt. Now, some people do get it when they go to Graham Berry and, or they go to Tony, like certain, so there are tactics where you can win, but believe me, it's, it's in clamp down. Mm. The money thing is, the second is, if you get a win and say, oh, well, this is not, I get a win. And I was right. Believe me, you will crash and burn. That win is, Temporary at best. Yeah. You're lucky if it lasts two, three days, maybe even two, three hours. That's really, that's really interesting because my thought is it does tend to last three days. And curiously, if you look at uh, faith healers like Benny Hinn, yeah. people get out of the wheelchair and they can manage about three days, and then they have all the pain of having walked around when their body was not fit to do it. Adrenaline can only keep you going for a certain time. But yeah, you get the adrenaline opioid response and it may last three days and then you'll be, oh, it's a roller coaster. <laughs> you are now a potential trouble source. You're just yes. again and again, as happened yes. to Hubbard, quite evidently when you read, he keeps saying, now I've found out how to do it. No, scratch that. Now I've found out how to do it. No, scratch that. Now I've found out how to do it. Every six months from 1950 onwards, he cancelled Dianetics. In 1951, in Science of Survival, he says, don't do this, it's hypnosis. And then it was reissued in 1977. And I haven't seen anybody mention that he cancelled it because it is hypnosis. But sorry, that, that's your second. Oh, yep. yeah, it, got it. That, that was it doesn't matter what you achieve in Scientology. It's temporary and transitory. Yeah. You can give them a million dollars, you can give them $10 million, you can have every process under the sun, moon, and stars. Mm. Superpower. 
That's good. Things. Super power teaches about squeakiness, doesn't it? And oiliness. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, it's transitory, and people think, oh, if I go back and have a little fix, little repair, it'll it'll all work out well. Let me tell you, Scientology charges you for every repair, mm-hmm. megabucks. Normally, any conscientious entity, any authentic business, if they give you a lemon or something that had a manufacturing defect mm-hmm. or was in some way not working out to what they promised, they will fix it for free. Mm. right you take in your your computer because it's switching itself off you just bought it it's not working boom you get a replacement right there no questions asked Mm. if the company is ethical in scientology even if they messed up they often say well you weren't set up for that you needed to be set up or worse They've got all kinds of labels for you. Mm. You're PTS, you're a rock slammer, you're a no case game, you're a degraded being. being. You're you, 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 you mm. are overcharged. Mm. You have an SPBTO cluster. <laughs> you not only have a troublesome VT, you have a PTS, BTO cluster, flooding your mind to make you PTS, or you have an SPBT or an SP, whatever it is, you got the why that you didn't maintain gain is you, 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 you. So those are the lessons. Don't think if you had a Scientology win, you will go bankrupt as much as anybody else who didn't have superpower and three L's and OT8. You will, your wife will divorce you just as much as if you didn't go up to OT8 with three L's and superpower. You, you, your help, your heart attacks will occur just as much as if you never went to OT8 with three L's. So, the one thing that you don't have now is money in the bank. Or friends. <laughs> or a job. <laughs> or a life. And and let, let me underline something here for anybody who's watching who, who doesn't know this. Karen knows what she's talking about. Karen is one of only eight people in the known universe who's trained to the highest level of Scientology. And she spent decades, you know, trying to help people using this material. So when she says, this is what happens, this is the voice of a tremendous amount of experience. This is really worth listening to that, you know, just don't try this at home. What can we say? You know, don't get into Scientology. And the end of Scientology, of course, is this fantastic, this brilliant course, which Hubbard very carefully didn't release while he was alive. The only person who I think did the original OT8 course, the highest level on the bridge to this day, was Otto Rose. And I'm not sure he did the same course that they've released, but um, they threw him out as well. Because <laughs> like, he was a suppressive person, Hubbard found, suddenly, uh, after many years of working with him. Um, so about eight years of working with Otto. But 
On OT8, we are now told that basically you've got to undo what you've done in Scientology. So the, the end phenomenon of Scientology, that there is a brilliant story that Hubbard retells, and it's a story by Lord Dunsany, who was a 19th century story writer, who was a lord, apparently, and uh, very nice for him. And this story, and I remember reading this, it's from a, a lecture, but it was in Advance magazine, and it's like, so there's a prophecy that this monastery will fall after a thousand years and the day has come when it's going to fall and this guy wanders up from the village and normally there'd be guards on the gate it's a monastery i don't know why there'd be guards on the gate but apparently this is the way the story was i didn't write the story so this guy goes there and the, the guards are just sitting there going oh it's the day the monastery is going to fall and he walks past some shaggy dog story room by room by room by room and eventually he gets to the holy of holies this is where the secret the power that is been generated by this monastery has come from that here in the holy of holies is the, you know the magic and he pulls the veil aside on an empty room and i remember wondering as a scientologist is he trying to tell me something <laughs> and i think he was that it's all hype it's all blown up ask for evidence if scientology can you know, I used to, I used to did this for years, go on stage, giving a talk, put a little bit of tinfoil on the table and say, any Scientology OTs are floating around in the environment here watching me, which they doubtless are because I'm a, the most dangerous enemy in, you know, outside of the United States. Um, so just move this bit of tinfoil one inch and I will believe hasn't happened yet ask for a demonstration ask for proof ask for evidence because this is after all the modern science of mental health isn't it it's a science so there'll be evidence there'll be proof there is no proof there are people and we've talked about this before that when we criticize Scientology people say but didn't you have wins and it's like yeah when I eat a good dinner I feel good you know, what do you mean by win? You know, when I realized something, I feel good. In Scientology, I felt elated many times at the end of processes. You know, I got really high on Scientology, but cocaine would have been a lot cheaper and a lot less dangerous. Well, I'm not advocating that because I'm not a fan of that either. But that whole business of getting high, that's all there is in the end. The governing policy of Scientology, as written by Elrond Hubbard in a policy letter called governing policy is make money, make more money, make, make even more money, make others produce so as to make even more money. That is the policy of the religion of Scientology, make money. And I personally don't think that's ethically sound. I think make friends would be a much better idea. Uh, we always deliver what we promise is another thing that that's the senior policy of Scientology. And um, they don't, they don't deliver any of the things they promise. I wanted to say on the point about suppressives, this terror that Scientologists have of the suppressive person. And so I, I was in a, shortly after I had left and um, I was in a supermarket where my former landlady, who was an OT4 was, and I turned to realize she was standing, you know, just a few feet away from me. She was not a slight lady. She was quite large. She lifted into the air. She jumped with the shock was so intense at realizing that she was that close to a suppressive person and she ran. 
And it, it was sort of when I a couple of years later, I interviewed John McMaster, the world's first real clear. I mean, until 1965, there were an awful lot of pretend clears, but the first real clear, John McMaster. And he said to me, I couldn't, you know, because the suppressive person stuff was all coming down then in 65, 66. And he said, I couldn't. I sat with Hubbard and I said, what is this, Ron? Surely we should deal with these suppressive people, not just run away from them. And that's the whole thing in Scientology. You disconnect. You run away because you do not have the tools to communicate with them. You do not have the tools to help them. You do not have the tools to heal them, despite everything you've been told. And that is an admission of defeat. And it runs through Scientology. We will not confront that which scares us. Just one last hilarious note. To get to class 12, these, all these classes, is brutal. Mm. No days off. 90 hour weeks of study, perform, videotape, watch your video back with all the critiques, week after week, month after month to get a final pass to say you are perfect, you can deliver L's, blah, blah. Well, here's the clincher, and here's the. Pierre APA did an ex Scientologist who was delivering in the field, did a compilation of all the first 56 original class 12s. Now, when John said only eight, he meant class 12 case supervisors, of which there have only ever been case supervisors. But the auditors, he compiled a list of 56. Guess what? 50 of the 56 were declared suppressive persons. So they worked for years and they got no little to no pay. They struggled and they got their video passes and blah, blah, blah. And 50 out of the 56, after Scientology training them to class 12, were antisocial suppressive persons. Go figure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought that. <laughs> I met Pierre K. It was like St. Hill of the original St. Hill then built it up to St. Hill's size, like 80, 85% of those were then declared suppressors, right? Yeah, absolutely. So this, this is just a meaningless Scientology tool. John, this was stimulating. We got some lessons learned. Your high is temporary, transitory, <laughs> and as much as you try to get back that high, that you got maybe in a parasocial or whatever. No, wake up, wake up. It's a Truman show with it a is lot a of deception and a lot of, go see the movie, The Matrix, and then align to what you got yourself in. John, this was stimulating. Very, very nice. Yeah. Thank you and a big hug to you. And Likewise. Lots of love. See you in a month, right? See you in a month's time, yeah. Month's time. Bye-bye, John. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hi, John here. Thanks for watching. We'd appreciate it very much if you would click like, as well as subscribe, and click the bell for notifications. Every dollar helps, and we welcome new patrons on Patreon. We can make a one-off payment with any currency through PayPal. Thanks so much.